This is part three of a three-part podcast. Hi, my name's Ryan. I've been a supporter of Paul's for many years now. I wish to get the podcast and video creation part of the system we call Paul back up to full speed. And I think Patreon support is a big part of that system. Go over to patreon.com slash Paul Wheaton. Make a pledge for each artifact that Paul creates. Again, the site is patreon.com slash Paul Wheaton. You can also find the link in the podcast notes. Enjoy the podcast. Let's see. Next, the next one, uh, building the walls where, uh, we're in contact with the earth. Uh, building the walls, we're in contact with the earth. Uh, full junk poles, small logs versus on-site milled slabs versus cost of dimensional lumber and the use of cob to fill gaps before backfilling. Building the walls, we're in contact with the earth. Okay. Full, full junk poles or small logs. Okay. Um, so, what I like to suggest is that uh, on your exterior wall, that's on and on the, a wall that's going to have earth on the other side. What I like the idea of is putting a vertical post in every five feet, and then you're going to use smaller wood on the outside side of those logs. Um, and now Mike Ayler did something where he put in a lot more vertical logs. And then he went and got a bunch of uh, uh, dimensional lumber cutoff pieces, like that were like somewhere between two and two and a half feet long. And then he would make his um, exterior wall out of those, and they were flat and nice to be able to attach things to and and not get scuffed up and stuff. I I you know and that and he was getting them for free, but of course you know you have to drive over and get them and stuff. Um, I like using the material from the land, and a, and a lot of it is is that um, I know it's going to take some work to peel that wood, um, and of course go get it and, and bring it over. But I mean, like the sticks of that size, I mean you could grab three or four and just drag them over by hand, and so it's it's a pretty easy going little project. Um, I, I I like the idea of using the material from the land more than driving however far you might need to drive to go to get to a mill which happens to have materials that you can use. Um, and I kind of feel like that's a big part of the natural and natural building is using materials from the land. Um, and then using the cob to fill the gaps before backfilling. Um, yeah, I, uh, you know, it, it's true that if you use dimensional lumber, uh, then you're not going to do it. But on the other hand, if you use dimensional lumber for um, for that layer, like Mike Ayler did, then um, you are putting in an insulative layer between the living space and the mass. And what I want to do is to be able to say, um, somebody's saying, speak up, please. Can you hear me okay? 
I do same as normal. Okay. Um, and so, uh, if, if you've got that, that inch and a half thick layer of, uh, of wood that's insulative, and granted in Mike Ayler's design, then, uh, the, the cold water would, would come and brush up against that membrane right there. And so then, you know, okay, so there's, there's like this, this non-frozen but very cold water right next to your house, and all the insulation you have is that inch and a half thick chunk of, of wood. And it's kind of like, okay, you know, that's a, a, uh, that's a certain level of cold right there, and you want to insulate yourself from the cold. But we're going a whole different route with the Wafati. This is one of the big changes in the Wafati design, is we're saying, that mass in the middle of winter, that mass is like 75 degrees, maybe maybe even 78 degrees. It's going to heat us. I don't want to put an insulative layer between us. So with the logs, there's going to be gaps between the logs, and then we're going to put cob there, which is conductive. Because... Mm-hmm. Cobb is going to not have the air spaces that the rest of the mass has, which with the air spaces and the rest of the mass makes it both insulative and conductive. So we want to be able to have uh, between um, the air space and, uh, the, and the mass where there's a membrane, so between the air space and the membrane, we want to be able to fill those spaces between those logs just so that if we are, if we're, if we have a home and we're going to do a little bit of nesting in the home, we're going to do a little bit of, uh, uh, housekeeping. Yeah. It's like we want to be able to know that there's not bugs in there or rodents. Uh, we want to be able to know that, you know, the house is sealed and, and that, um, there's no way for bugs or rodents to get in. Um, and there's, and when we go to tidy, it's tidy. It's not like there's a bunch of dust or something that can accumulate where we can't quite see it in between those bits of logs. So, um, I, I think it's, it's really important to be able to, to do this instead of the dimensional lumber stuff. I think that's what the question was. That's my understanding of it. Okay. Next one. Uh, any info on the natural insulation layer condition in Allerton Abbey when the roof was redone last October? Perhaps a comparison to bringing in straw bales and using flakes to create the insulation gap between the waterproof layers and the up and down side to sheets of extruded insulation. Okay, I don't want to use the sheets of extruded insulation. That stuff is, is super toxic. And, and so I don't, Want it, and it's kind of like, oh yeah, but it's going to be totally encapsulated behind soil, and it's kind of like you know they say the same thing about the Earth ships, where it's like, well, those tires are totally encapsulated, yet people still get headaches when they're there, and so um, I I kind of feel like, um, all right, but but let's talk about Alderton Abbey for a moment. Uh, when we dug in. We found the, uh, the duff layer. Uh, it was a good six to eight inches thick. Um, so a real good healthy duff layer. 
Um, and it, and at least the duff layer, layer was the correct thickness and done correctly and all that stuff. And when we were up there, uh, and it was just me and Fred and for a while there was me and Fred and Donkey and we're like, okay, we got to pull all this material off and then we got to rebuild. And so what are we going to do with this duff layer? And I just made the executive decision of like, um, uh, ignore it. You know, it's going to get mixed in as we put it all back together um, and just let it get mixed in. But we're not going to try and do a duff layer. We're just going to. So currently Allerton Abbey does not have an insulative duff layer. And, and it's like, um, let's see how it goes. Let's, let's see how it performs. Um, and, uh, and I gotta, I wanna throw out a quick shout out too about the doors. The doors, when they were originally hung, they, they were not hung really well. And so they've needed a lot of repair. And, uh, uh, now it, it seems like, um, the doors have been, how they're hung has been dramatically overhauled. And, uh, when I was down there, it was so sweet. Like the, the front door, we debate about, what the weight of it is because it's a it's a very tall and very wide and very thick door that's homemade and it's insulated and so it's a huge door and uh i think it weighs about uh 200 pounds um but we've had some people who speculate that it weighs over 400 pounds but the great thing about the door is that since it is so heavy it's like even if there was no latch whatsoever, I think that a strong wind would not move that door. So when you open and close the door, you've got to kind of throw your shoulder into it a little bit to get it to go. But it does, it swings ever so sweetly right now. And then what we did is we, we, we put some magnets in it. So now, uh, in fact, when the door goes to close, it kind of makes a zip sound as all the magnets kind of, you know, all, all grab hold. And it, and it holds it holds it in place. Uh, we have not yet put in a proper latch of any kind, and that's something we should probably do fairly soon. Um, all right, but um, let's see. The 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 question was um, about the the duff, the insulation layer. Um, I guess uh, for now, instead of a duff layer, uh, what we've got is um, which, by the way, a duff layer is going to be about R two per inch, and um, the dry dirt that happens to have this sporadic piece of wood chip mixed in um, is probably going to be something about R 0.68 per inch. And so um, not as good per inch. Um, and so let's, let's see how it does. I mean, I kind of feel like a lot of people have gotten hung up on the duff layer too. So, but now, okay, the question also talks about possibly uh, using straw bales. Um, that could work, but now we're bringing in straw bales, and it, and it's like, um, so we we built these straw bale walls. We had to drive four hours round trip to go get these straw bales, and I kind of feel like these straw bale walls lost a lot of eco points when we did that. And I'd rather use natural materials. Now, I kind of feel like, uh, for the next one, like, if, when we do something, we do, in fact, maybe for Cooper Cabin, I kind of feel like what I'd like to try is slip straw. 
I've never done Slipstraw before, but I've heard a lot about it, and I, I think that might be possibly, because we've got naturally occurring here on this land, um, like uh, four different kinds of sand and three different kinds of clay. And so I kind of feel like, and then, of course, lots of organic matter everywhere. But um, we've got the Dances with Pigs Meadow, which in the when you're looking at it in the early spring or uh, late fall, it's just covered with this soaking wet uh, straw, which you could just go out and grab by the handful and pull out of the ground. You don't even need a scythe or anything. Just break it up. Just pull it. And I kind of feel like take that, mix it in with some clay, you got your slip straw. And so, um, uh, or a clay straw. And it's like, that would, I think that would be a, a great, uh, uh, wall material. It would probably go, um, really fast. And it's material from the land. Right. So I like the idea of experimenting in that space. All right. Last, the last, uh, question. No, wait, there's more. There's a whole other, I have to scroll down more. Uh, thoughts on implementing plumbing in the existing buildings or future ones when a well is installed in the lab. Thoughts on integrating that in gray water output, especially in the colder zones and winter freezing issues. Okay. Um, in both of the structures, we have something built in, which is to allow plumbing uh, or, or electrical in or out of the building. Um, and we, we haven't put that in yet. But, um, like, like, there's no... There's no running water yet on the lab. That's one of the reasons why we we're doing this Kickstarter in the hopes that it does so good that I'll be able to put in a well up at the lab. Um, but uh, uh, I would have to say that um, uh, what we would probably do is is a willow feeder style of thing on the inside, and that it would be um, vented to the outside. Um, and then uh, I think when you do gray water uh, in a cold climate, and and uh, most people don't do this, like they 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 say, oh, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to have the human discipline to reroute my gray water to a septic tank through the winter. And um, and I, I doubt that they do that. And then they just have gray water running out onto the frozen ground, which I think would be a pretty serious problem. But the thing I think is the thing to do is that you have uh, a small greenhouse and you have your gray water do a lap through the greenhouse and um, uh, be able to – so that way, um, uh, because it's an enclosed greenhouse and, and sun does get in there, I would put no edibles in there, just stuff that, that takes up gray water really, really well. And then um, the the gray water itself is going to be bringing in a certain amount of heat in into this greenhouse-like space. And then, of course, when the sun hits it just right, it'll add some heat. Um, and uh, then usually uh, for these kinds of gray water systems, you know, the gray water runs in and this pure, clean white water comes out. Um, and I think instead what we would probably want to do is something that would resemble a drain field. But you could collect the water from the gray water system and route it to a pond system or something like that if you wanted to. And, of course, if you're in a big city, 
and they were like so proudly declaring that they had uh, one of those fully closed systems. What do they uh, What do they call those? You remember? Um, uh, it'll be a big building where it's like they collect all of the uh, gray water and then they clean it and then they use that inside the building again. Um, I, I know what you're talking about, but I can't remember the name. Why am I not thinking? I mean, mostly because I don't like the idea of it. <laughs> but it's like, oh, it's the ultimate in sustainability. Um, our building, um, uh, uh, we take no water from the city water system, and we put, you know, no material into the sewage treatment plant. You know, we're a, a, a self-contained building and I can't remember what that's called. There's a, there's a word for it, but, um, I like the idea of like, you know, let's drink well water and, um, and let the, with the water that comes out of our gray system be far cleaner than anything that goes into any drain field anywhere. And, uh, and then it goes down hundreds of feet until it gets to our, uh, stuff. So, um, all right. Let's see. So are those enough thoughts about, oh, cause that's, that solves the freezing issues. I'm trying to solve the freezing issues. I think that yeah. you've got to be able to have your, your gray water growies be able to, to process that stuff in, in the wintertime all year long. Uh, comments of the current flooring versus Cobb Adobe floor. Um, Let's see. And implementing insulation X inches underneath the finished surface, if you would at all. I don't think I would want to put any insulation underneath. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm thinking that's part of my thermal mass. Um, uh, and I also kind of feel like, um, you know, like in, in houses where they have a cold cement floor, or not in houses, but like in shops and the like, but they have a cold cement floor because they haven't put any insulation underneath it, then it's kind of like, well, if the building is kept small enough, it's like, okay, here we are standing in the middle of the floor, and it's cold. It's a cold, cold cement floor. And it's like, yeah, but it's only like 10 feet until you're to the outside. And it's like, okay, I wonder what the temperature of that floor would be if it was 30 feet to the outside. And, and hence, you know, that's kind of what the concept of the umbrella is. And so now what's the temperature right there? Plus, the other thing is, is a lot of times they design these structures. So like we've got this building right here, and um, they've they've got the, the cement pad set up in such a way that the water that comes down off the mountain is higher than the cement pad. There's no drainage to go around the cement pad. So uh, we actually got a jackhammer, and we're kind of like trying to make it so that there'll be a drainage ditch on the uphill side to carry water away from that cement pad. Um, and so anyway, all right. Uh, the So the key is, is like if you're standing on a cement pad inside of a garage, and it's like, wow. That is that is a cold floor. It's cooling this entire building, and it's the middle of winter. We want to warm things up, and it's kind of like, yeah, the current outdoors is cooling your slab, so to speak. I mean, yeah, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Technically, it's not cooling shit. It's extracting the heat out. So, 
anyway, they're upset now. Sorry, everyone. Yeah, yeah. Here they come. Here they come. Uh, but like, I'm gonna I'm gonna go with this uh, this pseudo force, you know, of sorts. Um, and and it's kind of like I I just feel like uh, if it was further away, it would be warm. And not only would it be warm, but it would hold that warmth for many years. And so um, it's about being further away and keeping the water out. So if you've got water like passing like three feet underneath your building, then it's like that's going to chill your building in the in the middle of winter when you don't want it chilled. Okay, let's see. Uh, various methods for protecting the posts where they are bur- buried. Uh, the DE ash borax mix versus wrapping versus tamped gravel versus combinations of them all. I'm leaning towards wrapping the pole in plastic. Oh man, I want to talk you out of that. But not the bottom, just the sides. Oh, that is interesting. Yeah, I, I thought wrapping the pole in plastic. No! And then I saw the next part that, oh, that is interesting. Yeah, hmm. Then the tamped hole has landscape fabric inserted to hold six inch of road base, which is tamped down as well. And then some landscape fabric on top, which would hold the DE borax mix so it can't settle into the gravel and will help counter and damage as remaining sap moisture from the log drains out once in place since most builders aren't waiting one to two years after cutting logs before they build. All right. I got to say that my current thinking is is that um, the idea of putting gravel in the bottom of the hole is good. Putting cement in the bottom of the hole is just in general a bad idea. However, if you were to if you were to make the hole be like if you're going to put a post in that's 10 inches in diameter, and you made your hole 24 inches in diameter, and then you put cement in the bottom so that it basically made a broad footpath. So it's it's going to be difficult to get past that to push down. So it's got a bigger footprint to push down. Does that make sense? I think so, yeah. It's like you're, it's like you're burying a dead man. You're, you're making, uh, like, like if you had a, uh, like let's say you've got some sandy soil and you put the, put the 10 inch diameter log in and then you go with your excavator and you push down on the top. You'll be able to drive that in like an extra four inches or something like that. Or in the case of Allerton Abbey, maybe even five or six inches. But now if you put, if you, if you made your hole this crazy enormous hole, you made like 24 inches in diameter, and then you put like a three foot, three inch thick cement pad down there in the bottom of that hole, and then you put the log in and you filled it around the, the log, and you tried to put weight on it to push it down. You probably wouldn't be able to push it down at all because it's got that foot, yeah, it's sitting on, yeah. And so if you're going to try and do something like that, that's different. But the thing is, is like making your hole that big is kind of, kind of, yeah. Now, uh, what you could do is you, is you could try to dig the whole area down with an excavator, or you could try to dig some trenches where your posts are going to go that are, like, 
you know, uh, two feet wide and, you know, as deep as you want your post to go in. And it's like that, that's a, a, a plausible and then pour in your cement footing. But it's like, okay, now we're kind of in the whole space of like why you don't want to use cement. Yeah. You know, and so now we're, cause I, I kind of feel like it work, but I, I kind of feel like there's times when you might want to use a little bit of cement here and there. And I kind of feel like if you use such a small amount of cement that you made the cement yourself, then I kind of feel like, okay, that can still be natural building. But I think it would be more of a natural building if you used zero cement, um, for all the reasons. Um, and so it's kind of like, uh, uh, all right, so that's got benefit, but like, let's, let's step away from that benefit. Let's step away from, cause we're not going to use cement. So therefore, not going to, you could, these huge locks and you're going to set, uh, your posts on top of those enormous locks. That's a, that's a possibility, but that, I mean, now it's starting to get like, you, you're making this a lot harder than, Most of what I'm thinking is, is that, you know, don't you want your log to, to dry out really well? Now, of course, there is the idea of like, um, uh, where the, the, the point at which it's most likely to rot is right at the soil surface. And, uh, because that's where you've got like your, your moisture and it's like, are you trapping all that stuff inside? Are you hoping that you're going to In, thus reducing the amount of rot. Um, so I, I kind of feel like mm, I'm not a big one on that either. What I love the idea of is like we have so much wood ash. Let's let's use that for something, and this is a great place for it. So what we've kind of got is a mixture of wood ash, DE, and a little bit of borax. And now granted, I don't like going too crazy with the borax, although it's a mined material. So it's just as a naturally occurring material, it is toxic, although it's got a very low toxicity, especially when you compare it. Because borax is often used as something that you would add in to your laundry. Usually. Like if you go get that 20 meal team borax, it's got all the instructions on it for, here's how you use it in your laundry. Right. And, uh, and it's kind of like, it's, uh, far less toxic than any of the laundry detergents out there, or any, I should say, any of the standard laundry detergents that are out there. But it's still got some toxicity. So I kind of feel like I don't want to go too crazy with the borax. Um, anyway, what we do is we sprinkle, we, we make this mixture, and we sprinkle some of this mixture in when we're refilling the hole uh, once the post is in place. Um, and then uh, when we get into the top inch, we put in like 10 times more in that top inch. Yeah. Like the concentration, the ratio is 10 times higher of this mixture. So that way, uh, that's where the air is and the, the most likely place for rot. Um, that's what I would do. Then, of course, if, if you're putting this in some place where, where you've dug your hole, at the bottom of the hole, it's like there's already quite a bit of gravel down there. Any moisture that might possibly come out of the log is like, like 90% of it is going to come out of the bottom of the post. 
Uh, very little is going to come out of the sides, and very little is going to come out of the top. So, like, 90% of it is that little footprint at the bottom. So you don't want to put, like, a piece of plastic down there or something like that because that will hold all the the moisture inside the log, and you want that to come out and get out of here and dry the log better. So that's why I kind of think, like, well, if you've packed that log down there super tight and you've pushed it down with the excavator onto sand, that's also the way that you would get sand uh, to kind of seal for a pond. So, so therefore, if you put a little bit of three-quarter inch gravel down there, I think that there's going to be avenues for any water to be able to get out, and maybe even a couple of inches of gravel down. There. Yeah, that might be good. So, um, uh, Mike Ayer wraps. The bottom of his posts in uh, black plastic. I think we're all agreed at this point that that does not work, even though Mike kept doing it to his dying day. Um, I uh, I know that people char the posts, and I I kind of feel like um, charring charring your posts. There's a lot of people. I've heard some recent stuff where people are like, that does not help at all, hmm. but. But um, I believe that charring the posts might potentially add 10% to the lifespan. Um, but I don't. I still don't think it's really worth it. I don't think I would. I, I'm not interested in trying it. I don't want to, I've, I know that we've had people up on the lab that were building structures, and they did that. Um, but on mine, we've never done it on mine. Um, so um, I think I'd let it go. I think. I think it's like. Uh, uh, maybe, maybe the idea is like if you've got lots of time on your hands, build two wafatis, one with the charred post, one without, and then like etch that up in, the, you know, 20, 30 years and yeah, and see how see how it did. Now, Mark was here and and he did some work with the uh, the berm shed uh, when we were doing an event uh, last fall, and I think three of the posts because. When the berm shed was first put in, the guy that put it in, he had his own philosophies on how the drainage should be, which is different than mine. My philosophy is, is he who builds it gets a lot of, you know, uh, uh, space to do it their way. Right. So, so he wanted to put in this, this drain system with pipes and stuff. So I still own these grates and pipes and things, but he split before he got that far. And I think one of the reasons he split is that he didn't put the drain system in first, and so there was, like, this heavy rain, and we had two feet of standing water inside the berm shed. And um, and so after he left, then uh, my idea was to, to basically change the slope of the land to slope away from the berm shed. And that means cutting out a foot and a half of dirt on the up on the uphill side um, so that it slopes away from the berm shed. So we did that, and we have never seen a lake in there since. But because of this repeated lake activity, I believe is the reason, that when um, uh, they were in there uh, reworking this one into the berm shed, they went to those, some of these posts, and three of them were rotten at the base. And so they replaced them. And I think it's because of that flooding thing. Um, also, I, I'm not sure if they put anything in with the posts. And so we 
put the, this mixture in with the posts. Um, so let's see. Uh, did I cover all the little bits and bobs about putting putting the posts in the ground? I mean, I think the number one thing you can do is keep the posts dry. Yeah. And in a wafati, the design is is that for every post, there's at least five feet until there's the potential of any kind of uh, rainwater or or moisture. And so then that helps to keep the post very, very dry, and that's going to be a very powerful preservative. Okay, any options for tying in rocket appliances within a wafati? Um, the rocket mass heater, the rocket oven, the rocket water heater. So um, I, 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 I do think that, that, yeah, you can, and I think that the place to build those things is – Probably near one of the uh, non-berm walls, so like the uphill wall or the downhill wall. Yeah. Um, and so um, inside of Cooper Cabin, a rocket mass heater is in there. In fact, there's a rocket mass heater and a rocket cooktop are in there. Um, and uh, the rocket mass heater is like in the middle, like like uh, uh, halfway between the uphill wall and the downhill wall. And I think that if we had do-overs and you wanted to have a rocket mass heater in there, which I kind of feel like I hope we don't need a rocket mass heater in a Wolfati when they're done, but um, I would have put the rocket mass heater next to <coughs> the uphill wall. And um, uh, now that's another thing, too, is that, you know, when they went to go put the cooktop in, um, I felt like it should be next to one of the walls. They put the cooktop in at Allerton Abbey. I felt it should be next to one of the walls, but they, you know, I, again, I, I kind of leave it up to the person doing the work. They, they put it again in the middle. And, uh, so there's, there's a little bit extra, uh, exhaust ducting going on there for that, which, you know, I kind of wish they didn't have. Anyway, um, uh, I kind of feel like if a wafati works well, then it it shouldn't need a rocket mass heater at all. Um, and so that said, I kind of feel like when we get Cooper Cabin done, we'll leave the rocket mass heater in there, and then um, it's plausible. And, th- and this is especially true when you read uh, the work of Don Stevens as opposed to John Haight then it's plausible that what will happen is is that um, the rocket mass heater will still be there and we could record how much wood is used and then by the third or fourth year it might be down to zero. There'll be zero wood used for the rocket mass heater. Like it's always there ready to go as an option and in fact the total amount of wood that ends up being burned in it might be utterly displaced by if there wasn't a big hole in the wall to carry the exhaust outside that allows cold to come back in. And and so if that was not there, it would be like you don't need the rocket mass heater at all. I hope that that's where we end, uh, but really we need to uh, we need to do so much testing and budgets are tight. Yep. Um, all right. Let's see. The last item. Any comments on the Wafati in relation to the Better World book, um, there's a whole chapter in the Better World book, chapter 30, which we already covered. 
Uh, I don't know if that if he's looking for something more. Do you read anything more on that? I uh, haven't seen anything else. No. Oh, okay. All right. Let's call that good. Now, I suspect that there have been a lot of questions. I see your name in the chat thing. So you've been talking to people there. Yep. We got a, another review on our book posted while we were talking. <laughs> oh, good. Thanks How many acorns did we get? Nine and a half. Oh, okay. I think that's exciting. I, yeah, nine and I haven't half. had a chance to read the whole thing. It's okay. All right. Uh, a couple of questions came up. One person, when we were talking about putting the poles in the ground, were saying, uh, they said, so the borax is to keep it dry and absorb moisture. The borax is an antifungal. Yeah. And so if you use borax in your laundry, like, um, I think a great example is, is like, uh, with however you do your laundry and then it comes out, like it, you pull it out of your drawer and it's like, wow, it smells weird. It, it's, it, it smells like laundry. It's, you know, there's this odd smell to it. Yuck. Borax is famous for that's the ingredient that you add to make it so that your clothes do not have a smell. And um, because a lot of those smells are fungal, you know, and so it's a it's an antifungal. Um, but you know, fungus is the thing that generally eats wood. I mean, bacteria does too. But um, if you've got this this antibacterial, antifungal mineral. Um, which um, is near nearly an element, so it's like it pretty much cannot be broken down. Pretty much, I mean, um, I mean, we're we're talking about um, boron, right? It's on the elemental chart. It's like you're, it's like, oh, I'm going to take lead and I'm going to break it down into gold. And it's like, yeah, that that doesn't work. There are two elements. See, it's it's like, a, so do it. Good luck with that. It's a lot uh, of work. Yeah. Uh, but um, uh, so it's not the the, the boron isn't going to break down. So it's kind of like this this permanent fixture, and it's it's going to be uh, quite. It, it, it's a toxin. It's it's a massive toxin to funguses and bacteria, not as much to humans. Um, in fact, we we need boron to to live. Um, but and then in fact, there's a lot of times too where they use borax uh, as um, uh, a um, uh, fertilizer. So there are certain soils that are so low low in boron that they'll add borax. Uh, but on top of that, have you ever uh, gone? And maybe I don't think they have us anymore. But you're like, uh, you know, go back 20 years in time, and then um, you're going to uh, uh, go to the gas station and wash your hands, and huh. then you you hit the little thing and it puts this this gritty powder on your hands. That's that's usually borax. Huh. It, it would be a, a borax based hand washing thing. So uh, to give you an idea of you know how how safe it is, but uh, for us, how safe it is for human beings. But uh, you know, again, I think some people can get seriously ill from having contact with with borax or or, or borates, but it's or, or boric acid, acid. But it's not very many people, and uh, still, I want to treat it as a, as the toxin that it is. 
you know, and and try to keep it away from from people. But at the same time, it works as uh, an, an uh, anti-biological kind of thing to, to make sure that your wood is less likely to rot. But I also want to minimize the use of it. I'd rather use because the other thing is like with uh, wood ash, we have gobs of that that we're generating every every year from all the different rocket mass heaters we have, we have running. Uh, we had another comment about uh, somebody who said, my concern with Earth-integrated structures is the drainage. Uh, we get 60 inches a year of rain. And I think my, my comment to keep the reply short would be to uh, go back and listen to the last one that Paul and I did where we described uh, the structure of the wolf body and how it's designed. It's very much designed to drain water away. Yeah, water will not get in the house if it's built properly. If you're on a sloped structure and you build it the way it's designed to be built, I don't think you'll have any problems whatsoever. And so, um, it, I mean, it's designed to, to, to move the water away from the structure uh, in, a, in a very massive scale. So I, I think the only, the only Achilles heel for the structure is if you try to build it on a flat surface in a flood zone. Yeah. So, hey, and I can see that Dan Omen is here. Hi, Dan. Um, and and so uh, uh, he's there as the grass-fed homestead, and uh, he's talking about how there's a restaurant that uses borax powder in their bathrooms right now for hand soap. So, um, but, uh, all right. What else? What else has gone by in the, uh, in the chat thing? Uh, we have somebody who just asked if there's a typical square footage, I think, to that is no. Uh, I mean, there are only a couple in existence, but yeah. the, the idea, like you've talked about the 100 square foot one, but you've also talked before about building one where 20 people can live. Yeah. Um, so we've got the one that's the 10 by 10 that is far from, from I mean, we're, I think we're going to walk away from that one. And then we've got Allerton Abbey is 400 square feet. Cooper Cabin is 900 square feet. Um and, uh, yeah, I, th- I think, I mean, for the Ailer structures, I know that there's some, some that are like, uh, thousands of square feet. But yeah, the one that's going to be 20 people living under one roof, that's probably going to be something on the order of like a dozen bedrooms. And, uh, some of those, uh, bedrooms will accommodate multiple people, um, in them. And so, but, you know, that's, that is on the list of something that, that we need to experiment with is 20 people living under one roof without stabbing each other. And I think that that's, um, we got a, we kind of got a lot long ways to go just to get to that structure. But, but no, I do believe that you can do something that's on a very large scale. I mean, look at the, uh, what they do with the earth ships and stuff, but, and Ailer structures, you know, they've, this, this is something that can go on for, for, and be quite extensive. Another question here, uh, a comment. One says, an ancient waterproofing method for wood, uh, raw linseed oil mixed with charcoal. They say, I've seen roof beams in English houses 800 years old. But two, somebody in a book, 1800s farming book, said that if you put that on a fence post, you will die before the fence post drops. I hope that means that, you know, the fence post isn't killing you. <laughs> <laughs> like a short in your lifespan. <laughs> hey, 
won this race by cheating. <laughs> so um, that is something I'm not familiar with. Uh, I'm. I got to say that if it's inside the house, so uh, I'm a I'm a powerful advocate of untreated wood. Um, I like for most of my stuff to be completely untreated, to have no linseed oil, no tongue oil, no anything on it. Um, and uh, we've we've had some people who said that you just can't do that. You have to preserve it. And it's like I've I've got a, a set of shelves in here that um, are about 30 years old that I, I made from fresh wood when uh, about 30 years ago, and I made a, a hutch. Uh, and so um, uh, the wood has extracted natural oils from the air to some degree. Like it's, it is now a darker wood than other things. Um, and it's gotten that way naturally by itself um and uh it is other than that it's like the wood is brand new there is no sign of rot any anything that you would think anything that i was warned about when i first built it and then it's like you gotta at least oil it and that's so the key is is when you go outside that's a whole different story everything Everything is different. And so it's like for this kind of wood, I mean, the thing, one of the things that we've planted a ton of over the years is black locusts. And it's kind of like, okay, my understanding is, is that if you have a fence post, that um, what they'll do is uh, they'll they'll plant it, they'll, they'll have a fence post that's black locust out in a field. And after 40 years, they'll pull the fence post up, turn it around and stick it back in the ground. And they'll get another 40 years out of it. And so it sounds like it's in line with what you're talking about. But what you're talking about also sounds like a, a lot of work. Now, it's possible that if it's true, that it could be uh, a great solution. But at the same time, I would worry a little bit about, like, when you have the charcoal and the linseed oil coming into contact with each other, does it make anything toxic? Does it make anything that we should be worried about? Um I know that right now we're talking about, we did, uh, we had a bunch of people here who made all kinds of signs for things about three years ago. And they were just fun and beautiful and everywhere. And they just did, uh, used a wood burning tool. And so then that was like, uh, looked like a big soldering iron. It would just like, you know, burn, uh, onto the wood. And then, and then that, you know, they did all kinds of fun things. And those signs have all faded. And I, I uh, I kind of have asked like, oh, hey, can we try putting some tongue oil on those next time? Yeah. And that'll get it to last longer. But of course, it's exactly what that person just said. You know, a little bit of charcoal, uh, which is basically burnt wood, the blackened part of the wood, and a little bit of linseed oil. And it's kind of, and I'm saying like, well, but of course, you're doing it on a much larger scale. No, no, it sounds like. Basically, I'm kind of running through the chemistry in my head, and I'm kind of thinking, like, I can't think of a reason why it would be bad. It seems like it would be okay. Um, and if, you know, I would love – I mean, 
there's there's that whole thread at a permies where we talk about all of the different strategies for the posts for these kinds of structures. I would love to see that posted out there um, and to see all the responses to it. Like, is anybody going to challenge it? Is anybody going to take it out, especially when the book comes out? <laughs> um, but it seems like there's lots of discussion there already about this very topic. Right. All right. I think that's all we've got here today. All right. So, um, anything else that you want to squeeze into a podcast last minute? Like, go support our Kickstarter because that yeah, would be Yeah, come support cool. our Kickstarter. Appreciate all the people who have done so already. You guys are all awesome. Yeah, yeah, this is so exciting that it's gotten, I mean, it's like, this might be the most that any of my, because we're about at the halfway point right now. Yeah. And, and I think that this is the most any of my Kickstarters have ever been funded at this point. And so part of me is like, oh good, I'll just take the rest of this Kickstarter off. <laughs> take, take it easy and, uh, and call it good, you know? And another part of me is like all full of ideas and hopes and, and it's like, you know, what does it take to get a Kickstarter that brings in more than I've ever brought in before? What does it take to bring in the amount of money that other, I've seen, I mean, like if you look, there's some Kickstarters out there that get like over a million dollars. And I kind of feel like our product is better than their product. Why don't we get a million dollars? And so, um, Part of it is, is that for whatever reason, Kickstarter does not love us. They make it very clear. They go through all the projects. We love this one, and we love this one, and there's Paul's project, which we don't love. And then there's these other ones we love, you know, and apparently that's a big part of their algorithm. Like if you go and you list, list their stuff under their default al- algorithm, Everything at the top is projects we love. And, and then it's like, uh, you gotta sort by something else to get my stuff to come up. I don't know what it is. And then they've got this environmental listing and, and our stuff's all about the environment. And it's kind of like the rocket oven stuff. They put the rocket oven stuff in their environmental listing, but they won't put our book in the environmental listing. <sighs> but all right. All that aside. It's like I've got this twisted life I'm living now where part of it is like 55 grand is lots. That's lots. We're great. I'm going to go take a nap now. (laughs) Twisted up with the whole idea of like if I work my butt off for the last two weeks, maybe I can get it over a 100 and and maybe it'll even go over a million. I mean, like there's some if I could learn the magic words or or learn whatever it was these other guys did to go over a million, because I think it's like I do believe and and I'm biased that our product is better. This book is amazing, and and I kind of feel like there's some piece of magic or something that I don't know about that'll get it to like. Super duper big time. And I don't know. I don't know what super duper big time, how you get super duper big time. I don't get it. But I'm, you know, um, you know, so for the last two weeks, it seems like we're going to be the quest for super duper big time. I know it is. Let's see how it goes. Yeah. 
But um, we, you, you and I talked this morning about a strategy that could be for super duper big time. But it's like I think we've burned through seven strategies already for super super duper big time, and 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 we're just doing quite well <laughs> as opposed to like super duper big time. All right. Oh, look at that. There's big buttons in the chat. What are those? I don't know. It says the new tax laws specific to Kickstarter. Fuck you hard. Oh, great. That's not what I needed to hear. Wow. How exciting. Hey, Sh- and Sean, <laughs> you, you're in Canada. <laughs> I am. I suddenly I'm getting the feeling that this is your Kickstarter. <laughs> it's set up on your account. Otherwise, we could. But <laughs> oh, it says just stay under a million. Oh, okay. Oh, okay. So, well, if, if people can stop supporting us at nine hundred ninety-nine thousand nine hundred ninety-nine, that'd be really helpful. Apparently, the most funded book on Kickstarter ever was nine hundred thousand. And so, yeah, if we hit that number, we will be the most funded book on Kickstarter ever. So, um, oh, look, somebody says that I stink. <laughs> somebody says, somebody says, you smell like doo-doo. <laughs> and then they say, you stink. Who is that? So maybe they're talking to somebody else in the chat. Maybe they're talking to me. How can they smell me over the Internet? Smell-o-vision. All right. Uh-huh. On that note of me stinking, let's let's call it good. Let's do a wrap. If you like this sort of thing, come on out to the forums at permies.com where we talk about natural building, homesteading, and permaculture all the time. Don't forget, go out to patreon.com slash paulwheaton and make a pledge for future artifacts.